to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. It's been a while, huh? I want to tell you that London is my new favorite city in the world. I absolutely loved it. It's the most international city in the world. And you know what's fascinating, though? Houston's about ready to pass it as the most international city. Isn't that incredible? Uh, I never met friendlier people on the planet. They could cuss you out and you would thank them. I think it's the accent, the witty sense of humor. I don't know what it is. But seeing God's work there was absolutely energizing and vision generating. I need trips like that. Uh, we visited church leaders. We visited ministry practitioners from different stripes, uh, theologically and traditions, uh, all over London at Oxford. We listened, we learned, we discussed, we debated. Um, we took in, we pushed down to theological and biblical foundations, beliefs and practices, and ultimately everything circled around two ideas. How should Christians relate to culture? How should we relate to the culture around us? And what's the mission of the church? What is it? Johnny Certain was my favorite ministry leader. Um, He's an Anglican priest. Uh, you'd never know that he was by looking at him. He's a rough-looking dude. He's got sleeve tattoos on both arms. Uh, he had this incredibly warm and welcoming smile, like he was deeply interested in you, and this deep sense of humor. Uh, but it was clear that we didn't share the same theological vocabulary, but we shared the same love for Jesus and his salvation. We shared the same vision and passion for gospel ministry in the church and a gospel vision of the church. And at one point, uh, he said something that was absolutely, I want to say devastating, but I want to say in like an awakening kind of way. He said with all deep sincerity and with all deep honesty, he says, you know that story about Jesus uh, when his parents left him at the temple when they, when they left the feast and they left Jerusalem and they didn't realize it. Do you remember that story? How they walked a whole day and then they finally asked each other, where's Jesus? And he looked at us and he says, the church in England has left Jesus. And he goes on to say, uh, we left him for a cultural version of him. And we need a resurrection. And those words have stung and have sat and have uh, embedded themselves into my mind and my heart. And I wonder, I wonder, have we, the church in America, have we left Jesus for some sort of cultural form of him? This fall, we're going to look at the Jesus I never knew. I'm stealing it from an old, I think it's, is it Yancey that wrote that book a long time ago, 80s? Long time ago. Uh, we're going to follow Jesus in the Gospels this fall. We're going to look at all four of them. We're going to look at the parables. We're going to look at the stories. We're going to look at the encounters. All of Jesus, and for one reason, one obsession, one passion, one driving energy in doing so, and that is to rediscover Jesus. Because Jesus is the identity 
And he is the mission of the church. And Jesus is the answer and he's the solution to how the church relates to culture. He has it. And in looking at him and looking at his parables and being looking at the fact that the normal Christian life is actually realizing that we always leave him behind and we always need to rediscover him. And that that is how you grow in the Christian life. And that is how a church grows and reaches a culture. In fact, Johnny Certain, isn't that a great name? Johnny Certain, but it's S-E-R-T-I-N. He said, real Christianity is leaving Jesus, which he called a death, and then having a resurrection. Over and over and over again. So, we need to rediscover the Jesus we never knew. So that's what we're going to do this fall. So what are we going to do today? This is our last sermon in Ecclesiastes. This is it. We're done. 12, 8 through 14, and then there's no more for a while, right? So please stand for the hearing of God's word. A reading from Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verse 8 through 14. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, O oh Lord, we ask that you would shine on the page. We ask that you would give and grant the realities of this passage. Jesus, would you be our strength? Would you be our rescuer? Would you be our savior in real time? And would we would we recognize and see areas of our life where we have left you behind uh, for counterfeit substitutes of you, cultural realities of you, our own personal carvings of you? And Lord, would you give, give resurrections, rediscoveries of you? And I ask that you would do that in this passage, and I pray this in your name, amen. All right, I want you to look at verse 8. Got it? Electronic device, Bibles, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. This is how Ecclesiastes began, verse 2, right? So here's the end. This is the bookend. So Ecclesiastes is a book about vanity. That's the big idea. You can't escape it. You can't run from it. This is the solid reality of what this book is about. So Ecclesiastes is saying everything is falling apart. Everything is frustrating. Everything is continuously forever empty. This is life. This is normal, ordinary life. This is life outside of Eden. This is life in a fallen, wrecked world. And this is life for everyone. It's life for the Christian. It's life for the 
non-Christian. It's life for the religious. It's life for the skeptic. It's life for the addicted. It's life for the achiever. It's life for the moral. It's life for the immoral. Everyone lives in vanity. So the question is, how are you supposed to live in this kind of world? Well, we've seen lots of ways. Some say you do this cynically because life is hard and life is meaningless and life is all doom, despair, and destruction. And so the message is, stay in your room. (laughs) Don't leave the house, right? You can get that at the academy. You can get that in practical, emotional, psychological realities of people living their lives. Some say by natural selection is how you're supposed to live. Life is survival of the fittest, right? It's every man for himself. The message here is weed out the weak. Weed them out, right? Some say by having fun. So life is satisfying yourself. Uh, Everything is about what I want and what I need and what I desire and what's good for me and and how I can be happy and on and on and on and on again, right? The the message here is fun can fill the forever empty in your heart. Fun can do it. Others say, well, listen, here's how you're supposed to live in a mad, mad world. Do it with self-effort and control because life can be mastered and you can control it. And the messages here are, you can do it. You can fix it. Uh, You can be good and God will love you and bless you. If you keep the rules, everything will go well with you. Others say, listen, the only way to live in this mad, mad world is to be happy. It's to be positive. And this is where life is Disney World, right? This is the plastic smiles. These messages are, your dreams do come true and your best life now. Okay, so how does God say we're supposed to live in a mad, mad world? What does he say? Look at verse 13. This is the end of the matter. All has been heard. You've heard the messages. You've heard Every attempt under the sun to live in a mad, mad world, and here's my answer. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. I want you to see, and this is what we've done, Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes has been verse 13 in action, verse 13 on display. Verse 13 has been the subterranean world underneath the whole book that has poked itself through throughout the book. We have seen Ecclesiastes, the subterranean level of fear God and keep his commandments, this reality breaking in to the vain world, and this was the pockets of enjoyment. This was the pockets of delight. This was the pockets of hope. This was the pockets of beauty. This was the eruptions a breathtaking wonder that came into this world that we kind of were like, wait a minute, this book is so odd because it's so broken, yet it's so beautiful. It's so wrecked. But it's so mysterious, and it is so because verse 13 has been a subterranean world living underneath this vain, vain world. So, how do you live with all the vanity? The answer, according to God, is fear me. Fear me. The overall message of the Old Testament is it's so bad. Only God can fix it. So fear him. So build your life 
around a God who rescues you, who alone can fix it. And Ecclesiastes made it so brutally clear to us that it's really that bad, that only God can fix it. So fear him. So fearing God is the Old Testament way of saying it's a gospel life. Fearing God presupposes redemption. Fearing God, it presupposes, it actually is building itself around the redemption or the mighty, wonderful, rescuing acts of God in the Old Testament. That's what it means to fear God. So Ecclesiastes and wisdom literature presupposes this, that only God can fix it. This is why Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? When you get the reality that God is, it's so bad that only God can do it, fix it, and you build your life around that kind of God and that kind of rescue, guess what happens? You become a wise person, the Bible says. Don't mix up root and fruit. The root is the mighty redemptive acts of God. The fruit is you become a wise person when you build your life around that. So how do we do this, though? How do we do verse 13? How does that happen? How do we live this way amidst all the vanity? How do we fear God, which produces obedience to commands? How do we build our messy lives in a messy world around the mighty rescuing acts of God? How do you do that? Well, all of us slip into the wrong way of doing it, and that's found in verse 13. For this is the whole duty of man. Here's the wrong way. We do our duty. We live by duty. Uh, John Piper and Desiring God put together what is now probably one of Probably one of the most, well, it's in the top 10 illustration classics, I think. Now, I'm going to add a little bit to it. I'm going to, it's just kind of the way I do things. So here's what he says. It goes something like this. Let's say you're married and it's your 10-year anniversary. And so you come home for, to your wife and you bring uh, 10 red roses. Now, that's where his illustration ends. Mine's going to continue a little more. Let's say you bring 10 boxes of the best chocolate in the world. Let's say you bring 10 outfits from her favorite clothing store. Let's say you bring 10 pairs of her favorite shoes. And then, this is still, you're still going. And then let's say you bring 10 nights and 11 days in an all-inclusive resort in Cancun. And you've already taken care and made arrangements for the kids. And you come up and you, you give this to your wife on her 10th anniversary. Now, your bride is overwhelmed with joy. She's overwhelmed with gratitude. She's overwhelmed with feeling so deeply cherished and loved by you. And she's overwhelmed with a, a geyser of love for you. And so she hugs you and she slobbers all over you, right? <laughs> I told you I'm adding just a tad. And then right in the middle of it, you hold up your hand like this. And you go, hey, 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 honey. Ooh. Don't mention it. It's my duty. You know what happens immediately after that? You go to Cancun alone. <laughs> alone with yourself for 10 days, 10 nights and 11 days. 
See, the husband's duty, it's all about him. It's not about the wonder and the, the worthiness and the, the delight and the attributes and the words and the works of his wife. It's not about loving and delighting in his wife. It's about him. It's about needing to be a good husband. It's about needing to be recognized as a good husband. It's about keeping the rules of a good husband. Duty is self-centered. Duty is moralism. Duty leaves Jesus behind. Duty is all about me, not about God. And now I know every single one of us in this room are thinking the same thing. But Jeff, it says that. And the answer is, yep, that's what it says. Or does it? I'm going to give you the literal Hebrew translation. Are you ready? Here it goes. For this is the whole of the man. Duty is nowhere in the Hebrew text. Duty is an interpretation, not a translation. The fact that the interpreters inserted duty in here betrays the reality of how they perceived the Christian life, and they actually pushed in their interpretation of the Christian life, and it actually shows how, how powerful the pull is to self, how powerful the gravitational realities of this fallen, wrecked world is to spin the world around me and to make it all about us. And so duty says, listen, to receive acceptance, to be loved, to be a success, to be a somebody, you've got to do, 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 and you've got to go, go, go. Duty says you are what you achieve. Relating to God based on your doing or your duty will harden your heart It will harden your heart towards God. It will harden your heart towards others. It will harden your heart towards yourself. And it will harden your heart towards life itself. Life will become a grind and exhausting. And it will open up a gap of meaninglessness and despair and hopelessness. Because you can't do, do, do. And you can't go, go, go. And you can't find life and success and acceptance and love by your achievements. A church built around duty is an ugly thing. I wish, I wish you could have been there when we interviewed the leaders, church leaders in England. Because in their culture right now, this post modern post-Christian culture, the folks outside of the church think they're rejecting Christianity or Jesus, but you know what they're really rejecting? Duty. They're rejecting moralism. If you go into Scotland, it's even more hostile. 
So how do you do verse 13 if it's not by duty, right? How do we fear God and keep his commands amidst all the vanity in the world if it's not by duty? The only biblical answer is by delight. I mean, let's look at verse 13 again here. For this is the whole of the man. Now, remove duty from verse 13, and it means this. Fear God and keep his commandments because building your messy life around God and his rescue makes you whole. It completes you. It fills the forever empty. It makes you you. Verse 13 is an invitation to delight in God and his rescue that it's so bad, only he can fix it. And when you begin to rest and rely on the fact that God is the God of rescue and that the Old Testament is a record of his mighty rescuing acts and you begin to build your life around that, delight replaces duty. Duty dies at the door of delight every single time. So what does doing delight instead of duty practically look like? So you're sitting here and thinking it's just as I'm thinking. Okay, this is great. I love these concepts. I love these ideas. Duty, not delight. Fantastic. Or delight, not duty. Uh, I kind of get it theologically. I'm getting it conceptually. I'm getting it in my ideas and clarity in my mind. But what does it practically look like in our life? This is how practical it is. It's as practical as how you approach the Bible. I want you to look at verses 9 through 11. Do you see this whole list of Scripture words of wisdom? They're mentioned eight times. Eight different ways words are talked about, but they're all wisdom words that are all related to Scripture or divine words of wisdom, but they're, they're being emphasized through a human writer, right? So you've got Solomon who wrote 3,000 Proverbs and 1,005 songs, And then you have the book of Job and Ecclesiastes, which are other editions of what's called wisdom literature or scripture words of wisdom, right? Here's the point in verses 9 through 11. Scripture words of wisdom don't just convey information. They get things done. Scripture words do something. What do they do? In verse 9, they do knowledge, but this is not informational knowledge. This is experiential knowledge. This is make-it-real knowledge. This is the kind of when, when you come in contact with wisdom words in the Scripture, it, it pushes and produces experiential knowledge into your life. It doesn't download data into your brain. It pushes reality into your heart. That's what these words do. But it keeps going, doesn't it? Look at delight. Words of delight. That's just what we're talking about. Your heart gets reached. What has the power to reach the bottom of your heart and change it? Scripture words do, according to this text. And only Scripture words. So much so that you delight. What else? Well, they're words of truth, verse 10. And know what this means? This is the content. And this is not just content like data again. What's happening when truth is happening, when, when the Scripture does truth to you, what it does is it releases reality upon you. 
It opens up new worlds. It actually gives you a proper interpretation of God and yourself and others in the world you live in. It actually starts shining light on and all the ways we leave Jesus behind, and it shines light on all the ways in which we have gathered lies and false clothing and trappings about who God is and what life is all about. And the truth is like light, and it strips it all away and opens your eyes that, oh my word, this is reality. I want you to see there are two powerful images here too. Scripture words have the power to shepherd you. Do you see that? These words actually shepherd you. That's what goad means. It's a shepherding stick. And Scripture is like, it has so much power, it comes and shepherds your life and shepherds your heart and shepherds your relationships and shepherds everything about you. It's powerful enough to shepherd you. But you see what else it does? Look at nails in verse 11. It can pierce you. It can penetrate you. It can secure you. That's how powerful, that's what these words do. So here's the point. This is absolutely practical. This is absolutely life-changing. The Bible is not a book about what we do. The Bible is a book about what God has done. About what God is doing. And about what God will do. So here's how we're to go to the Bible. We're to go to the Bible not like it's information to be mastered. We're to go to the Bible like it's a force to be reckoned with. That will change your life. So when you go to the Bible as if it's a force to be reckoned with, you go to the Bible first and foremost not to talk, but to listen, not to do, but to listen. And you say things like this, you say, oh God, speak, act, work, shine on the page. Show yourself to me. Teach me. Correct me. Change me. Help me. Heal me. You not only come to listen, but you come to admit your need and weakness. You say things like, oh God, I am at the end of me. My will has failed me. I need you. Help me. Heal me. We also come to the Bible, if it's a force to be reckoned with, to encounter and experience God. You're actually coming to commune with God. You're coming to have God meet with you. You're coming for a relationship and a friendship. You're coming because God actually shepherds you and shows up to you in the Scriptures. And you say things like, oh God, draw near and show me your grace and show me your glory. And you say things like, open my eyes and reach me with you. And then in the whole process, it's a conversation and a friendship. So it's joyful and it's delightful. And you say things like, I adore you because of this and I thank you because of that. And I pray for this and I ask you to do that. And then you also come expecting and asking God to work because if God is released in the Scriptures, you're actually asking Him to do things because that's the kind of God He is. And so you say, I pray for Jim and I ask that you heal Sally and I 
ask that you would break in and make your love known to so-and-so, and I ask that you would help change this situation. Would you end this over here? Would you break in with your kingdom realities? Would you justify so-and-so? Would you open the door so that we could have a meaningful conversation that's not hokey and stupid, but it's real about you? Would you do that, God? I pray for Aunt Susie, and I, I want you to reach my child, and I want these things. Would you do these things? You ask him to do these kind of things because the Bible is not words that convey information. The Bible is words that get things done. God shows up in his words. God breaks into your life in his words. The words of God are the active, personal presence of God in your life and in this world. Where is God? What happened to God? Why can't I find God? And God says, I'm here. I'm active. I'm present in my words. All right. Do you know when Jesus came on the scene well after Ecclesiastes, do you know what he said? You know it. It's on the tip of your tongue. I am the good shepherd. And what he did is he just took all the images, all of them, and brought them to himself. And in fact, you see in that passage, I think I left it behind here, so I'm going to have to go back. Look at verse 11. They, do you see that? This means the collected sayings, the scripture words, are given by one shepherd. You see that one shepherd that's used two other times in the Bible, and in the other two times it refers directly to God himself. And so the image of the picture here is that there is a shepherd who is speaking, and by speaking, he shepherds you. He's personally active and present in your life and in the world. And so when Jesus shows up and says, takes all that data, all those data points that were pinging and pointing to further on, to keep reading the Bible, keep reading, and everyone was looking for this ultimate shepherd, and Jesus shows up, and so when he says these words, he is fulfilling and he's climaxing and he's escalating everything that was just said before about a shepherd. So when you get to Psalm 23 and it says, the Lord is my shepherd, and Jesus shows up and says, I am the good shepherd. And you know what he does next? He says this, and here's how you know the difference between me and all the false shepherds out there. So right away, he's basically saying, I'm the one shepherd. There's only one. There are a lot of false shepherds out there, he says, after he says this statement. And we looked at them, didn't we? We've seen many of them. In Ecclesiastes, we've seen a lot of false shepherds. We've seen the false shepherd of money and work. We've seen the false shepherd of fun and, and cynicism and skepticism. We've seen tons of false shepherds that aren't bad in and of themselves, but we end up looking to them to be our shepherd. And when we look to them to be our shepherd, they can't shepherd us because they aren't the shepherd. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm the one shepherd, the only shepherd. And here's how you know the difference. When the wolf shows up, all the other shepherds run. 
but me. When the wolf shows up, cynicism runs. Money can't rescue. Duty can't love you. When Jesus sees the wolf, he rescues you. He doesn't run from the cross. He stays on it. And he stays on it until all the howling of sin and judgment is silenced. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So we are to delight in that shepherd. We are to delight in that rescue. We are to delight in the words of him and what he's accomplished. Amen.